Romans chapter 8, verses 1 and 2 is the sermon text this morning. And hear the word of God. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. And let us pray together. Our gracious father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you that as we march through Romans, we've gotten to this point. This is really a high point. It's 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 wonderful. Oh, God, to say these words, to read them as the words of Scripture and, and, and then to repeat them as our own honest belief. Oh, God, uh, we would simply ask you now through the preaching that you might give these words even greater meaning to us as believers and that we would be able to say them with greater faith. In Jesus name. Amen. Well, now, having concluded chapters six and seven, uh, we have concluded uh, what was uh, I called and I'm not alone in calling this a parenthesis. We're now at the next major section within uh, uh, the, the greater section of chapters five through eight. Chapter chapter eight, obviously. And I would remind you here of the overall structure of Romans as I presented it. Uh, there's two main sections thus far. First, in chapters one through four, uh, the, the apostle sets forth the gospel of which he's not ashamed, and that is the gospel of justification, the gospel of free grace. So he states the doctrine in chapters 1 through 4. But then in chapters 5 through 8, he does something a little bit different. There is a second major section, and that is he opens in chapter 5, verse 1, by saying, therefore, uh, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. And that indicates a, a subtle transition. This, the major subject is still justification by faith, but instead of explaining the doctrine now, beginning in chapter 5, he is explaining what is true of the man who has been justified. And the great thing that's true of the man who's been justified, it's described in many ways, but the overarching point that Paul is making in that description in chapters 5 through 8 is the assurance and the certainty that the believer enjoys because he has been justified. In other words, again, what is true of the man who has been justified? Well, the first thing is he has peace with God. And he has access by faith into this grace in which he stands. And he rejoices in tribulation. And on and on he goes. Now, that is helpful to, to bear in mind because that is certainly the great theme of chapter 8. It was the great theme of chapter 5, uh, which I was just quoting a moment ago. And as we come to chapter 8, uh, Paul is from beginning to end unfolding the assurance and the certainty of salvation that we have in Christ. It's a certainty we have as to our salvation now. And if you go along with Paul through chapter 8, you'll see that it is a certainty that will carry us all the way to the end. All the way to the end. And nothing can ever take salvation from those who are in Christ Jesus. And so there is a, a real similarity between chapters 5 and chapters 8. In fact, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones in his sermons on chapter 8 
says that Paul is saying essentially nothing new. He's just re- he's just repeating himself and elaborating. I, I suppose I'm going to have to preach through all these verses to determine whether I agree with that statement. Nevertheless, the, the basic sentiment I agree with. He is restating and elaborating the major arguments of chapter 5. And thus, we have this major section. The question then becomes, what of chapters 6 and 7? And as you remember, I said, and I've already said it in the sermon, I'll remind you now, they form a parenthesis. Paul does what he so often does. He states his case. Now, he does this in a minor way very often, just the course of three or four verses, but also as a major portion of the epistle. He'll state his case, chapter 5, and then he deals with objections, an objection in chapter 6, an objection in chapter 7. Having cleared away those objections, he returns and he finishes his case. The case all along was our certainty, the finality of our salvation, the assurance that we possess. The joys and the blessings that the man enjoys who has been justified. But but this raises certain objections, such as what he raises in chapter 6. Well, if you're saying all this is true, Paul, does that mean that we should sin so that grace may abound? Or uh, chapter 7, are you saying that the law is something bad? That it's something sinful? Those are the two major objections he deals with. But having done so, and having placed those for the sake of the structure of the epistle in a parenthesis, he returns now to the main line of thought which I've now stated so many times as our certainty in the gospel. And so beginning now and returning uh, to that main and great theme in chapter 8, verse 1, I am not alone in saying, and I'm sure that you would agree with me, that this is one of the great verses in all the Bible. It's the kind of thing that the Christian loves to quote, especially the Protestant Christian, as he defies in protest uh, the Roman Catholic heresy of justification by works. The believer, along with Luther, loves to say there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. There are few places in all the Bible that state so well and indeed so triumphantly the believer's victory over sin and condemnation, his freedom from the law of sin and death and condemnation, his ability to stand before God in grace as this verse Here is the man who's been justified. What can we say of him? There is therefore now no condemnation. Why? Because he's been justified by faith. I would notice, uh, therefore, obvious similarities to what Paul says in chapter 5, verse 1. Another great verse. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And you see see why the argument is in chapter 8. In many ways, he's just repeating the arguments, though, a little differently. You notice how both verses, chapter 5, verse 1, chapter 8, verse 1, state the same truth with the same note of triumph. As though Paul is saying, what a blessing it is to be a Christian. Is there anything better in all the world? Can anything better be conceived than what we possess? In fact, uh, to use the language of one of the old Puritans, uh, to this day I don't know who said it. I think it was Edwards, but I don't know. Uh, I, 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 it's better uh, to be righteous in Christ than it would have been to be righteous in Adam or in myself. You see, uh, even if Adam hadn't fallen, it's still better to be in Christ. There is not a, a better possible blessing that could come to us than to be standing in the righteousness of Jesus Christ viewed from any standpoint. This is the highest possible blessing that could come to a man. What a blessing it is to be a Christian. Is there anything better? That could possibly be conceived that God should bestow the righteousness of Jesus Christ upon man. No, there isn't. 
But as we try to take in the greatness of this verse and of this subject, we are tempted at times to take it in isolation. We quote it along with chapter 5, verse 1. Uh, and it would be easy to preach a, a sermon here as though it stood on its own. But in neither case are we allowed to do so for in both cases, in chapter 5, verse 1, as well as in chapter 8, verse 1, we notice that the phrase or the sentence begins with the word therefore. And that word is a very important word. It is a word that we are not free to ignore. It is a word which demands certain things of us in order that we might understand what is being said in that verse. For one thing, it demands that we ask, what is the connection to what precedes? In other words, as it's sometimes put, what is the therefore, therefore? What is the exact reference to this word, therefore? What is the thought and the teaching that demands this inference and this conclusion as stated like this? What is it that Paul has said leading up to this that has led him now to say there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus? And here I find that there are two, two main views, just as I said in chapter 7. And I almost regret to say that to you, uh, but, I, but I feel that I must, uh, because I find that uh, these views are almost equally held among Reformed believers. These views are almost equally held among the commentators. How frustrating that, that is when you're studying and trying to get to the bottom of something and you find these two commentaries that you love are saying opposite things. Well, I'm going to present both views and then I'm going to tell you what I think is right. The first view is that Paul is dealing with the guilt of sin when he says there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ or to those. He is seeing this statement, the man who makes this argument, he sees this statement as a resumption of the argument in chapter five and thus sees chapters six and seven as a parenthesis. Chapter six and seven, it could be argued, deal with the subject of the believer's sanctification, his battle with sin, his his battle with the power of sin, not the guilt of sin. But as he begins this new section in chapter uh, eight, he is resuming the arguments of chapter five. And, and when he says, therefore, it really is uh, flowing out of the end of chapter five. That, for instance, is the argument of Martin Lloyd-Jones. And thus, chapter six and seven are more or less put out of the picture. By the time you get to chapter eight, uh, you can just forget about them. And you really need to be thinking about chapter five. They're closed off. They're trapped in the parenthesis, you might say. The other main view sees Paul here as responding to the, the dilemma just posed in chapter 7, verses 14 and following, or else to the whole of chapter 6 and 7, where the power of sin is explored. But I notice that this view especially is focused on the end of chapter 7, where Paul is speaking of his ongoing conflict uh, with sin. He cries out, who will deliver me? I, I'm, I'm trapped in this bitter, bitter battle. In other words, one view... Uh, a bitter battle with sin, the power of sin. So the guilt of sin, the power of sin. One view sees uh, the, the battle uh, or, or the statement, chapter 8, verse 1, having to do with justification. And the second view uh, has to do with the doctrine of sanctification. And that second view, in essence, is saying uh, that Paul is in, is, in essence, relieving the dilemma. He is solving the dilemma posed in those verses, who will deliver me from this bitter struggle? Ah, here is the answer. You will find many commentators pointing to this, arguing this, and many Christians arguing this. This is in essence to say that Paul is here expressing the doctrine 
of sanctification in chapter 8, and especially chapter 8, verse 1. Well, to me, Robert Haldane has the most interesting and compelling suggestion, and I'm not trying to make this overly complicated uh, or technical, although I realize this is somewhat complicated or technical, but I want to uh, settle here at the beginning before we go any further into chapter 8 for so many weeks what the main subject is. Also, what is its connection to what proceeds? And I'm in full agreement with Robert Haldane when he says that chapters 6 and 7 are primarily in view when Paul says, therefore, in chapter 8, verse 1. It flows out of what he's just said, but that chapter 8, verse 1 must still be seen as a statement about the believer's justification, not his sanctification. And that is simply because Uh, This argument is too strong, I think, to overturn. Justification uh, not only is the main theme of the epistle, and so it's very natural to return to it here, but also because justification, not sanctification, is the exact opposite of condemnation. It's very hard to make the argument fit if you're saying Paul is talking about sanctification. He's relieving the dilemma that he feels at the end of chapter 7 By stating there's no condemnation and somehow making that about sanctification. No, the opposite of condemnation is justification. And so that's the only natural reading here. But if that's the case, what is the connection between chapter 8 verse 1 and chapter 6 and 7? Well, there's there's three points of connection. First, we must appreciate the continued emphasis on union with Christ. That's a major emphasis here. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, that is a key doctrine, admittedly, that is taught at the end of chapter 5. And so the first few can very naturally say, well, Paul is just marching on. He's, he's, he's left the subject aside for a moment. He's dealing with objections in 6 and 7. Now, he's resuming union with Christ. But if you read... Chapter 6 and chapter 7, what you notice is that, especially in chapter 6, the great theme of that chapter is union with Christ. As well as the first part of chapter 7, where he says we've been divorced from the law, we've been married to another, we're now joined to Christ, we've been united to him. Now that is a compelling reason to take chapter 8, verse 1 is flowing out of chapter 6 and 7. And then there's the reference to the Holy Spirit in chapter 7, verse 8. Admittedly, the Holy Spirit is referenced in the, in the beginning of chapter 5. But listen to what he says in chapter 7, verse 6. Now we've been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve a newness of the Spirit and not oldness of the letter. There, he's talking about the newness of the Spirit, the new life that we have in the Spirit. And it's impossible to read chapter 8 and not see that chapter as an elaboration of what Paul was saying in that verse. Serving God in the newness of the spirit. And then one final point. There is the flesh spirit contrast, which is present in chapter six and seven, but which you do not find in chapter five. And that is a contrast which becomes prominent in chapter eight. And thus it is clear that it is impossible to read chapter eight with only chapter five in mind. Chapters 6 and 7 are still very much in the Apostle's mind. They ought to be in our mind as well. But in saying this, we don't conclude that chapter 8 is about sanctification. You see, we can still say that it's flowing out of those two chapters for those three reasons that I just stated. But that doesn't make it about sanctification. 
No, in fact, Paul has returned to his main point. The main point not only in chapter 5, but in the whole of the epistle. Namely, justification and the assurance it leads to. But these other ideas that we find in chapter 6 and 7 are now brought to bear upon this great subject. Again, union with Christ, the Holy Spirit, and the contrast between the flesh and the spirit. In other words, those three ideas are not left alone and trapped in the parenthesis. And the only thing we can draw from is chapter 5. When we see him saying, therefore, no, it really is best to see all of chapters five through seven as leading Paul to say what he says in chapter eight, verse one. But having said that, I come now to my exposition of the verse itself. Verse one, what is Paul saying here? Well, let me now explain its relevance to the rest of the chapter. Chapter eight, verse one is the major proposition of chapter eight. In fact, uh, it's the one idea that he states uh, that everything else supports. Everything that he goes on to say for the rest of the chapter supports the notion that there can be, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And, 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 and so the more that we grasp the arguments of chapter 8, the more clearly we will see the truth that is stated in that single verse. There is, there can be. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, the first thing that I would notice about this verse is the temporal reference. He says, now, there is therefore now no condemnation. Now, why does he say that? That is a word which demands an explanation, I would think. And the reason is because of the nature of justification itself. This is something that has already been accomplished for them. They have been justified. It isn't something they're hoping to find in their life. It isn't something they're looking for at the end of their lives. In other words, they don't have to wait for it. The man who is in Christ Jesus is the man who has justification. He is the man for whom there is and there can be no condemnation. If we go on with the argument in Romans chapter 8, we will be able to say that believers are saved in hope. This is verses 23 through 25, which I'm paraphrasing. They're eagerly waiting for that which is hoped for. But for this justification, the blessing of justification, they need not hope or wait for the resurrection, for the renewal of the world. Yes, for these things, they long and eagerly wait in hope. With eager expectation, the resurrection, we could say, the renewal of the cosmos does not belong in the category of the now. But the believer's justification does. It belongs in the category of the now. It's already done. It's accomplished. It awaits nothing further. God has rendered his verdict. The believer is just. He's declared righteous in Jesus Christ. He has been justified. Do you appreciate what I'm saying and what Paul is saying, he has peace with God. It's all present. It's all something that he's already enjoying, even as he's looking for further blessings. But of this, he looks for nothing further. Do you understand why that's so important to understand? Well, let me put it in this way. What about the future? Can he lose it? You say, well, he's, he's justified now. 
But maybe on the last day he'll experience something different. Maybe in this life he'll experience something different. In other words, he might be justified now, but then lose his justification. He might lose his justification. Can the believer lose what he now possesses? No. Not if he understands what it means to say there is therefore now no condemnation. To say this is to say, and I'm anticipating the arguments at the end of the chapter, the verdict has already been rendered. And will God go back on his word? Will he declare of his saints who stand in Christ, they are just, they stand in him. I regard them now as in him, the beloved, whom I love, and who has offered up a perfect righteousness for them, and which I have accepted in the resurrection. Oh yes, God has justified the believer. And who is there left to condemn, Paul will go on to say. Who, who, who could possibly overturn the verdict of God? Will God do so? Will God go back on his word? Surely not. Will he ever look on the believer in Christ and regard him as anything other than being in Christ? Yes, even when he sins. And all of chapter 8 becomes the unfolding of this idea. The certainty and the finality of the believer's justification. As well as the final salvation and glorification that is assured to him because of it. Nothing, Paul says, can now separate me from the love of God. Nothing can ever separate me from God himself. Nothing can take me out of this grace in which I now stand. But of whom is this true? That's the next thing we might want to see. Of whom is it true that there is now no condemnation? Certainly we wouldn't say this of everyone, but only of some. Of many, Paul has already told us the wrath of God is being revealed against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men. But there are others of whom it is true that there's no condemnation. There's no wrath being revealed against them. Not now, not ever. And in fact, chapters 5 through 7 have already told us all about them. The Christian man who's in Christ. The one who's been justified. The one who's no longer in Adam, but now in Christ. And do you see that in light of that? Chapters 5, 6, and 7. How natural it is that Paul would put it this way. In other words, expressing the truth and the assurance of the believer's justification and the finality of it. There is now, therefore, no condemnation to those who are in Christ. And if you are in Christ, you can never get out of him. Your position is secure. You're standing in grace and you know it. God's love is being shed abroad in your hearts. You are an object of God's unending love because you stand now in his beloved. You've been divorced from the law and well, no, not divorced. Excuse me. I'm misspeaking. You've died to the law. And now you're married to another. And that is a marriage that will go on to all eternity. Nothing can ever separate us from the love of Christ. And that is why. There can be. And there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ. It's because of their position. It's not because of who they are. It's not because of their works or their righteousness. Indeed, considered in themselves or in Adam, they would be condemned. They know it. And that is the state of man and sin. Man and sin. There is now, therefore, condemnation. For those who are not in Christ, there is now, there will be forever. Until they get in Christ. But now, Paul says, you've been joined to another. Now, Paul says, you belong to Christ. You stand in him. 
You are securely in his hands and no one can ever snatch you away. You stand in Jesus Christ, the new Adam, who paid the penalty for sin, the propitiation for our sins, Paul says. And so there can be no penalty for them now. Condemnation has already been poured out on him in wrath. Not only that, but he rendered a perfect righteousness unto God on their behalf. And now they're standing in that too. Not only has the penalty been taken away, no condemnation, but something positive has been put in its place. A positive righteousness by which God not only declares uh, and and, um, beholds them as innocent, but now as righteous. God ever looks on them in his son and he beholds a perfect righteousness that he delights in and accepts. They are just in my sight, God ever says. And now that he has justified, who is there to condemn? Verses 33 and 34. That is the whole argument of the chapter. Considered as they are in Christ Jesus, it is not possible now that God should condemn condemn them. And, And in this, Paul simply heaps reason upon reason. In fact, you notice this right away. If you look at verses 1 through 4 as the initial unit... Again, him telling us why there can be no condemnation for those who are in Christ. We notice how each new verse begins with a new reason. Therefore, verse 1, 4, verse 2, 4, verse 3, and that, verse 4. And that's just the beginning. As I say, he'll go on with this thought for the whole of the chapter. And so here I simply want to look at the first reason. Aside from the fact that they're in Christ Jesus, the first reason there can be no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus is this. For, verse 2, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. The reason, Paul is saying, that there is now no condemnation for me is because the law of sin and death, or excuse me, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law Of sin and death. That's how I know. Well, here again, we must define the terms. We have two laws which are set at odds. We have the law of sin and death and we have the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. One law from which we've been set free and the other is that which has set us free from the other. Two contrary laws. We begin with the negative. That from which we've been set free, the law of sin and death. And here arises an interesting question. It's a question which will determine your view of verse 1, whether it's about justification or about sanctification. Now, I I am here to tell you, uh, my view is that the, the reference here cannot be to the law of sin which dwells in our members, which he referred to in verses 21 and verse 23. From whence arises this bitter conflict with myself. With what? With the sin that dwells in my members. It's like a law, Paul says, that evil is present in me. And though there is a similarity to this new phrase in chapter 8, verse 2, the law of sin and death, it cannot be a reference to that law, which is at war with, uh, with him in his members, uh, what he calls the law of sin, which is in my members, verse 23. Though some take it that way. They take it that way. They say... The law of sin's in my members. I'm, I'm in this bitter struggle. I can't break free only, well, I come to chapter 8 and I see I can break free. I've broken free. The struggle is ended. You see, that's how some present it. All that tension is relieved once I get into chapter 8. 
And so it's, it's really about sanctification. The very law that enslaved me, Paul says, I've, and, and the continual war which beset me with indwelling sin. Well, it's all resolved, you see, once I get to chapter 8. I've been set free from it, in fact. And the war is ended. Well, I would say that makes a mockery of the whole presentation of chapter 7. The whole sense that we had from that chapter is there is something, there is a bitter struggle from which the believer cannot break free. Not until he's delivered from this body of death and this body of sin. He looks forward to the resurrection, but until then, the struggle remains. And the whole tension is that, again, he cannot break free. But here he says, I have been set free. I've been set free from the law of sin and death. Oh, the law of sin in my members is indwelling sin. That remains. But the law of sin and death, though a similar expression, is different. It's the law of God which condemns him. The law which makes him sin and which brings about death. By now we should be aware of the arguments. It's the major reference to the law if, if, you, if you just set aside for a moment what he was saying at the end of chapter 7 and think about the totality of the epistle, you realize that every reference to the law in the epistle thus far has been about God's law. What I read in chapter 3, it's God's law that condemns me. It's God's law, he even says in chapter 6 and chapter 7, that uh, arouses the sin which is at work in my members. It makes me to sin. It makes the situation worse. The law of sin and death is not the law in my members. It is the law of God which works sin and works death and which condemns me. By the way, this view also agrees with what he later says in verse 3. And so even though there's a similarity, you have to think, you have to try to think what Paul is really saying here. What's the reference? What's the law that makes me sin? What's the law that brings about death? What's the law that condemns me from which I've been set free? He says in verse 1, it's the law of God. Think about what he says in chapter 7, verses 4 and 6. Therefore, my brethren, you have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, that we should bear fruit to God. Verse 6, but now we've been delivered from the law, having died to that which we were held by so that we should serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. And then, as I say, in characteristic fashion, well, Paul deals with a couple objections. Is the law sin or has then that which is good become death to me? Certainly not. Verse 7, verse 13. Again, I would say you could put verses, uh, verses 7 through 25 in a parenthesis. In fact, in my Bible, I have an arrow from chapter 7, verse 6, straight to chapter 8, verse 1. That's really what he's expounding. I've been made dead to the law, the law of God. I've been married to Christ. Now I'm serving in the newness of the spirit. And so you see how naturally uh, Paul would express the second law as in terms of the spirit. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. What an expression that is. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus The phrase, in fact, is very similar to what Paul says in chapter 3, verse 27. He says, where is boasting then? It is excluded by what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. Again, Paul is contrasting the law of God and the gospel by speaking them of two laws. There's the law of works, which is found under the law of God. And there's the law of faith, 
which is found in the gospel. It's the same idea here. And he states, too, in terms of a law, he calls both a law, I mean, in order to stress the total contrast at play. The law of God, on the one hand, he says, works sin and death. It also, if you bring verse one into the picture, it works condemnation for the sinner. But the law of faith as another law or the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus works in another way. It works by grace. It works by the spirit who gives us life in Christ Jesus. In other words, as Robert Haldane says, the law or this law is the gospel. Whereof the Holy Spirit is the author. Again, Paul is simply setting the gospel over against the law of God and looking at what each law does in our life. One law condemns us, but the other law sets us free. And why would that be important to say? Why would it be important for me to say that I'm set free from the law of God, which condemns me? Well, again, it's the same argument of chapter seven, verses four through six. It is the believer and chapter six, verse 14. It's the believer able to say, I'm no longer under the law. When God regards me and when God judges me and renders his verdict, he does so no longer by the law. And what this means is that it can no longer condemn me. I am out of the reach of the law's condemnation. It is impossible now that God should condemn me. And whereby does he condemn the sinner? It is through means of the law. But I'm no longer under the law. I've been set free from it. How? By the law of the spirit of Christ Jesus. The spirit of life in Christ Jesus. I've been delivered from it. I've been married to another. And now the operative principle in my life. Or the determinative principle. That determines my relationship and my standing before God. Or you could say the law that governs me is no longer The law of God, but the spirit of God who redeems me by joining me to Christ. What is it that makes me a believer in Christ and no longer under the law? It's the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. And thus, as as things stand now, it is impossible that I should ever be condemned. What defines me now as a Christian is not sin and death. That is not how God regards me now, but life in the spirit of Christ Jesus. And you see, that's just the first reason. There are many more to come. But all of this is meant to be applied. Not just truths to be considered, but truths to be believed, truths to be uttered by the believer. Here is what the believer must see about himself, Paul is saying. What he must know about himself. He must understand, in other words, if I could put it this way, the logic of the gospel. Why it is there's now no condemnation for him. You see, it's one thing to say there is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. It's it's another thing to know why. To be confident and assured of this. So that no one could ever persuade you otherwise. Not even your own sin or the devil or anyone. Oh, there are many reasons for this. But already we have enough, I would say, to be totally assured of our salvation. Why am I not condemned, though a sinner? Why is it impossible now that I should ever be condemned by God, though I'm a sinner? And though I may fall into sin many times. Well, here's the great reason. And learn to say it to yourself. Because I'm in Christ Jesus. How did I ever get there? Well, it was the Holy Spirit who put me there. 
But now that he's done it, now that this law is at work in me, the law of God can never condemn me. It might chide me. It might correct me. It might instruct me. It does all these things, but it can never condemn me. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That is how God now regards us, and he'll do so forever. But the trouble, of course, as we know, is that we do not apply such logic to ourselves at times. We lack assurance of our salvation because, in reality, every time we sin, we deal with the law. We imagine ourselves as still being under the law, and we let the law upbraid us. Oh, sinner, you're guilty, you're condemned. We begin again to listen to what the law has to say. And thus, in essence, begin once more to regard ourselves as being an Adam or under the law. We deal with ourselves or we allow the law to deal with us as though we deserve to be condemned for our sin. Which is which, of course, is true so long as you take Christ out of the picture. But next time you sin and next time you feel condemned. Put yourself into Christ, which is where you stand if you're a believer, and then try to see if the charge sticks. Try to see if God can condemn you now or the law. Can God condemn the man who is in Christ? Can he condemn the bride of Christ? Or will he not love her dearly to the end, even when she sins? Of course, that doesn't settle everything for us, does it? I've been describing what's true of a Christian, the man who's in Christ. But the great thing that we want to know is, am I in Christ? Am I a believer? Am I the bride of Christ? That's that's the battle of our assurance, is it? Oh, I accept that the one who's in Christ, God could never condemn, even when he commits the worst sins. He'll never condemn him now. He may convict him. He'll upbraid him. He'll sanctify him, but he'll never condemn him. But how can I know that I am in Christ Jesus so that I may be sure that God will never condemn me? That's really what we want to be sure of. But I would say that is precisely what Paul is beginning to answer when he says in verse 1, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And what he goes on to elaborate in verses 4 and following. Who are those who are in Christ Jesus? Who's the real Christian and how may they know it? How do they find this assurance? Paul says they know it because of how they walk, how they live. They don't walk according to the flesh. They're walking now according to the spirit. And now they're listening to him. They're listening and agreeing with his testimony. Paul goes on to say, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the spirit, these are the sons of God. And on and on he goes along those lines. These are the ones to whom he's testifying their sonship, their assurance. These are the ones he's helping in prayer. These are the ones he's giving this mighty assurance. Who can separate me ever from the love of God? Who is convincing me of this? It's the Holy Spirit in me. And so the whole experience of assurance comes as we're walking by the Spirit, Paul says, being led by him and enjoying his testimony in us, not as we walk by the flesh. And so I close by asking you, Is that what you want? Do you want to be assured of your salvation? Do you want to be sure that you're a Christian and that you're in Christ and that God can never condemn you? Not now, not ever again. And that at the last day he will welcome you gladly into his kingdom. Well, I say to you all, if that is what you want, keep listening. Because this chapter was written for you.
Amen. And let us come now to the Lord's table. I'll read the words of institution as they're found in Luke 22, verse 14. When the hour had come, he sat down and the 12 apostles with him. Then he said to them with fervent desire, I've desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. But behold, the hand of my betrayer is with me on the table. And truly, the son of man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Then he began to then they began to question among themselves, which of them it was who would do this thing. It, isn't it amazing to see uh, the I don't think I've ever thought to put it this way, but the work of self-examination at the first Lord's Supper, uh, Jesus, Jesus really puts their faith to, to the test, doesn't he? He says, not all of you will stand with me in the hour of trial. And indeed, that was true. And it led them all to reflect upon themselves. Now, I'm not sure they all concluded the right thing at that moment. I think they were all thrown into doubt. And I'm not sure that's the point here, the point that we're meant to see if we are believers, is that we are believers. Uh, And by now, I hope many of us have withstood many temptations, many trials, which these men uh, had not. In fact, they were going to enter the greatest trial of their life. But I I hope that you've, you've walked your Christian walk long enough to know that you're a believer. Many of you, not all of you. And then on top of that, I would say, as we see the Lord's Supper given to us as a means of grace, the primary thing that a seal does remember it's a sign and a seal the purpose of a seal is certainty what god is doing by this means is placing his seal upon the righteousness of faith which we possess along with abraham he is assuring us Uh, i remember burkoff saying that long ago when i read it in his systematic theology the primary grace mediated to the church is a stronger faith whereby we attain assurance uh, in fact, the, the, the Heidelberg Catechism says something beautiful, something as just as surely as I hold this bread in my hand and this cup in my hand. So Christ broke his body and shed his blood for you. Uh, so I offer those words of encouragement to the believer. I say to the believer, come to the table, come because your weak is your faith is weak and you want it to be strengthened, not because your faith is strong. Acknowledge your unworthiness to come, as we saw last time in Matthew Henry's prayer. Say, Lord, I've examined myself. I'm unworthy, but I want the blessing that is contained here. And so thank you for inviting me to your table. Thank you for the grace that you offer me there. Make me better and supply what I'm lacking at this table in this moment. Uh, With those words of invitation, let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that uh, you have invited us to this table. We acknowledge our unworthiness. And indeed, some lack faith and may they may they be convicted not to come, though perhaps through this means might they find that Christ is offered freely to them. Uh, Lord, you can use anything to bring about faith. 
We pray that the unbeliever would be brought to faith even today, that he would see his need of Christ. But to those who are in Christ, O God, we ask that you would cause them to see afresh their need of greater faith and greater assurance. And would you give it to them through this means, even to me, O God. And so we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.